Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what's happening in Cuba right now? You may have seen the hashtag SOSCuba trending on social media in the past month, or seen fleeting references to protests there on news programs. It's actually a rare sight in Cuba, people taking to the streets actively protesting the way things are. The focus of their energy at the moment is a lack of food, medicines and electricity. There were arrests at the protests and after the protests, and internet connections weren't operating as usual with the internet going down for the whole country for periods of time. What has followed internationally has been somewhat predictable, a lot of talk about US-Cuban relations. But what do these protests mean for Cuba? Where did they come from? And do they signal a larger move against the president Miguel Diaz-Canel? This will be a very traditional episode of The Explainer, one of my favorite things. And a lot of us will be beginning from scratch so we can catch up on the real story of what's been happening. So to do that, we're really lucky to be joined today by journalist and author Rory Nichol, who has been writing for The Observer about the latest developments in Cuba, where he is based. And he's just showed me his Caribbean view from his uh, apartment in Havana, which looks amazing. So thank you for joining us, Rory, and thank you for that. But can you take us back a couple of weeks? When and where did these protests take place? Yes, well, um, I suppose the best way of explaining when it was, was it was right in the middle of the final of the Euro 2020. So um, it was two and a half weeks ago um, on a Sunday. Um, we were all settling down to watch that along with a lot of Cubans. It was on state television. And suddenly there were images coming out of a small town about 30 kilometers outside Havana called San Antonio de los Baños. They showed pictures of people running down the street, people sort of chanting liberty, people chanting we are not afraid. Um, that Those were extraordinary scenes to start with. They, we subsequently discovered, like a lot of Cuba, had been suffering from 12-hour blackouts. The electricity had been going out for 12 hours a day. You imagine what that is like in the Caribbean summer. You haven't got a fan at night. You haven't got your fridge with very, very precious food, of which there's very little at the moment, is off, and the food will be going off. Um, and people had had enough, and they came out. What then happened was this um, spread on social media, a social media that Cubans have only had for about three years. And suddenly people were coming out of the streets, the length and the breadth of the island. And there were protests everywhere. There were protests in pretty much every city and lots of them in Havana, lots of them in Santiago, the second city of Cuba. So at half time, in the football match, the, the transmission was broken into by the president, along with every other transmission going out in Cuba. And he clearly was both shocked and, um, and angered by what was happening. And he did something which is, in Cuban terms, is called a cold combat, when he called for all good revolutionaries to come out onto the street and defend the revolution. So that's, yes, that's what happened at the beginning. And what was the genesis of these shortages that people are protesting about? Where where did the electricity shortage, how did they come about? And why is there such food shortages at the moment? Well, there's three main shortages, which is food. Um, so you have to, there's people who are queuing for days now just for chicken. There's a curfew because of the pandemic, and so um, people will rent rooms and stairwell or rent room and stairwells. Um, I've even heard of people hiding in trees overnight to avoid the police to stay in their place for the queue. 
So there's that. There's very little food. The electricity is because the government doesn't have enough gas. And worst of all, I think, is there's a terrible, terrible shortage of medicines. Um, this for people with heart disease, such things. That's I mean, it's, it's shockingly worrying. There's no antibiotics, which is also a horror show. And uh, it comes down to really grim and small things like there's a scabies epidemic in the hospitals. A, you know, my my partner is expecting a child, and so she's always in for tests. And it's a horrible thought that she might catch scabies in there. And uh, it's easily dealt with, though, if you have the right cream, but there's none of that cream in Cuba, so no one can deal with it. So a lot of children have scabies. So these sort of things are enormous pressure on people. Sorry, to answer your actual question, which was the genesis. The genesis is a, is very clearly the pandemic in the short term. It, uh, I would imagine a lot of your listeners have probably visited Cuba. Um, it's a very, very popular tourist destination. It's an absolutely fantastic place to visit. In normal times, I spend a lot of time doing travel writing, and I love this country uh, above many others. But tra- tourism just ended. It just stopped, as you could imagine. And that meant that the economy contracted by 11%, meant that the government didn't get any foreign exchange. The the government lives very hand-to-mouth on foreign exchange. It doesn't participate in many of the international organizations that would lend it money. And it it also refuses to allow anybody um, else to import anything. It has to do all the importing itself. So it imports everything and it can't pay its bills. So nothing's coming in. So there's huge shortages. Now, you can then go back to why it doesn't have any money beyond the contraction under pandemic, but the countries haven't suffered like that. Um, And then you get into an ideological battle. It could be because you think that communist regimes don't work, and that having a Marxist centralized state is inefficient, and that after 62 years of it, that is... You're seeing the results of that. Or you could think it's the result of a 60-year-old US embargo, um, which has strangled the country. Um, the, there was a detente, as people will probably remember, um, in 2016. Rolling Stones came to visit. Fast and Furious 8 was filmed here. And most importantly, Barack Obama appeared saying, Kebola Cubanos, which means, what's up, Cubans, in the most street language you can get. And he said he wanted to bring an end to the last vestiges of the Cold War. That didn't survive Trump. Trump tightened the screws, stopped Cubans living abroad, sending money back as much as he could. And Joe Biden seems to have decided for either internal political reasons or because he thinks Trump's policies were working to overthrow the government here, has decided to continue on that. That all leads to a huge crunch. And all those things are probably true. And therefore, there's no food. Yeah, that's kind of what I was talking about in the introduction, the inevitability of it all coming back to US-Cuban relations. And I think that somewhat kind of muddies the water for international coverage because people don't actually often hear from Cubans or exactly what's going on on the ground because it gets kind of overtaken with the politics of it. In terms of being on the ground there, Rory, is there a divide between how people are impacted by the shortages depending on how much money they have? The key is whether you get money from abroad, which is harder, but people still do. There is now, there's now a black market in um 
uh, between the dollar and the local pesos. So if you're earning pesos, you have to buy dollars. Uh, I should explain. The, uh, there's a thing called the MLC store. In their desperate attempt to get foreign money, the government has moved pretty much everything you really need, apart from fruit and vegetables, into MLC stores. So if you want toothpaste, if you want cheese, if you want um, a coffee, if you want um, oil to cook with, you have to go to a dollar store. You have to pay in a hard currency, euros, pounds, dollars, essentially. Now, they are very, very difficult to get hold of. And there is a black marketing currency. So if you have dollars, you can buy pesos, which pays for things, other things, at 60 to the dollar. But if you have um, pesos, if you earn in pesos, if you live here and you earn money in pesos, to get those necessities, you have to pay 60 of your pesos to get a dollar. The visual exchange rate is less than half that. And so that's what people are doing. And it's a nightmare for them. It's an absolute nightmare for them because, and so these MLC stores are hated with a passion that I've never seen here before. I've heard Communist Party local chiefs say how much they hate them, how damaging they are. And it was interesting that some of them were attacked in the protest. Yeah, so going back to the government's response, you mentioned the, the football match being uh, taken off air and the president speaking to, to the country. Um, what was the other response? We heard that the internet was shut down at periods because there was a fear that these protests were spreading because the messages were being put up across things like Telegram, WhatsApp, Facebook. The internet's been an enormous change. I mean, just, uh, I've been coming since 2004, but I've been living here pretty much solidly since for three and a half years. When I first arrived three and a half years ago, I used to have to go to the thing called the Wi-Fi Park, which was quite a party scene, actually, but there was about, there was, no, always within walking distance, there was a Wi-Fi Park and there'd be music and be food, there'd be someone selling you illegal tickets for the internet that you would sign on and you could get onto the line. But then about three years ago, they introduced mobile data and that has transformed the country in good and bad ways. So the, um, a friend of mine, who's the Reuters bureau chief here, posted a very funny picture back then, before things got tough, of a party in Havana. And there was, and there was, there was uh, all these young people sitting looking at their phone in the photograph, which she pointed out would not have happened before the internet, mobile internet. Uh, before then, they would have been dancing. And she was annoyed because she loved dancing. So, um, but however, in terms of this, it has completely transformed everything. The uh, internet was the way that the news spread. The internet was the way that people showed what the government did next, which I'm sure we will talk about. And uh, that has caused the protest to continue, I suppose, although not in actually on the streets. Um, the government obviously knows how dangerous that is, and they basically shut it off. So uh, that helped calm the situation originally. Then, uh, interestingly, the government held a rally the following Saturday after the protests, and quite a lot of the president, Miguel de Diaz-Canal's speech, was about how the internet was spreading hate, and he started demonising the internet itself. So... Clearly, they would like to see it gone. Whether they could actually do that, I, I suspect that would be like standing in front of the wave, but we'll see. 
yeah, kind of bringing in the internet and then trying to take it away from companies, never mind people, would be extremely difficult. Sorry, bear in mind that the internet is also how most people get food now. So uh, there's a massive online markets for food. That is how people find food. So you turn it off, people can't get food. You mentioned there about what the government did next. So let's move on to that. What did the government do next after these street protests that you described from that uh, Sunday evening? So I think it was best put by someone I interviewed one as a person. Someone said she heard it. I spoke to said she, I won't give her real name, but she heard um, she heard people sort of chanting outside and she went out and said there was about 60 people in her local community who had gathered and were started walking towards the centre of the city. At first they saw police, but there weren't many police, so they weren't bothered by the police. Slowly the streams began to sort of converge and more and more people came. They got to the, they walked for about seven kilometres in the heat. The, um, she said that people had come out not expecting to be doing something like this, so now they didn't have water or anything. But they kept walking. Then they got to the centre of town and then they met various groups of they met the police, then they met the, um, the Avestas Negras, which are the black wasps, which are a special sort of police force. Then they also met the rapid reaction brigades who um, dress as civilians, but aren't civilians and can be very sort of violent. And I presume because, uh, although there wasn't much talk of it, I presume because the president gave the order for people to spill onto the streets, there was a certain amount of, you know, Cuban people who may support the revolution who came out. Um, but they met with a lot of force. I mean, not in the context of protests elsewhere, maybe. I mean, uh, it wasn't. Um, there was talk of... Uh, I don't even want to say there was talk of shooting. There was talk of shooting, but I, I don't, I can't confirm that. Um, a no, so far only one person has been killed, according to official sources. Um, the police responded very sort of aggressively by going into the crowds, dragging out the people they thought were ringleaders by the necks, pulling them into cars. They arrested a lot of people, and then finally, when um, they started firing tear gas when they started sort of using these rapid reaction brigades against the protesters. The protests sort of dissipated. What was the age profile or the various characteristics of the protesters or were they across the board? It's, uh, it's very interesting. This The protesters here in, in the centre of town were um, in Havana were younger. It's very difficult to tell what the case was in the other parts of the country. I'd say the protesters at the very beginning in San Antonio de los Baños were um, all ages, but there's no doubt here they were a bit younger. I think it's a red herring, to be honest. I think the young are motivated, but I think that from my experience of talking to people on the street and just seeing the reactions of uh, friends, I think scales are falling from a lot of eyes, have been falling from a lot of eyes over the last three weeks. I would say that there was discontent across the entire society. And there were reports of people going missing after the protests. Are people still missing? Are family members still talking about trying to find um, people who had been protesting or were deemed to be organizers of protests? Well, that is, yeah, that's very, very interesting. I actually received 
call from the, which is almost unheard of, from the minister who's responsible for the relations with the, the US um, to absolutely assure me that um, there were no disappeared. I'm sure anyone who's got the, the, the lightest sort of grip on Latin American politics will realize the word disappeared has a huge resonance. Um, and there is no question of people being killed or people being sort of lost forever. But they really, really didn't respond well to the idea that people had been disappeared. Now, they did arrest people and they didn't tell the families where they were. They, by the time I got the call, they clearly felt they had told all the families where people were. However, independent media say that around 700 people, they reckon, were arrested at the time. They think 263 are still detained. I mean, this is coming from a non-confirmed source, but this is what they're, this is, there's a group of very sort of interesting young people pulling together these figures. They say about 30 or 40 are unaccounted for. Um, but as I say, the government has furiously um, denied that and a, other people have um, been released. There's definitely cases. There was, um, a, there was a case of one guy, Aniello Troya, um, 25. He's been sentenced to a year in prison. He, his mother said that she didn't know that the case was happening. She didn't arrive till after the sentence had been um, handed out or after the guilty verdict had been handed out and she arrived just before sentencing. According to the government, um, about 60 people have been sentenced so far. Is it difficult to be a journalist there? How have journalists been treated in the last few weeks? I haven't had any problems. I mean, it's a, it's a very strange place to be a journalist anyway. You're, you're carefully monitored. Um, you, they, they, don't, um, they don't shy away from telling you when they're unhappy. I mean, but uh, one, I think it's very difficult for the photographers. Um, I think it's extraordinarily difficult for Cuban journalists. I think several of them have been detained. Certainly people taking photographs in the street have been detained. There, um, there was a photographer who was beaten up by the police, um, a foreign photographer beaten up by the police. It's a, it's, 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 you know, it is a tricky place. It's uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I've been in much worse. And there was a there was a journalist who was working for a Spanish outlet detained during these as well. That that was something that reached our uh, network over here. Yes, yes, she was detained for um, I think um, a day or two. Uh, she is half Cuban. Um, she has a foreign passport, but she's Cuban, so they obviously thought that was fair enough. Um, they, she worked for I think it's ABC, which is a quite right wing uh, Spanish newspaper so they said that she wasn't um, accredited to work for that outlet i mean you know i say i say that that's no defense i don't think anyone should be restricted to say whatever the hell they like but um a, but that's what uh, that was certainly true she was released after a couple of days it was a particularly ridiculous moment where i not I mean, not ridiculous for her, but when a social media commentator, Dinah Stars, was arrested on live television, that was, um, that seemed like an unwise move on the side of the authorities. Yeah, there's been a couple of things like that. There was a hip hop song that also kind of angered the government, which seems to have gotten more people on the side of the protests. Um, has that 
actually been as big a part of all this as it as it seems when we're reading from from the other side of the world. It's an absolutely huge part of it. Um, it's called Patria e Vida. It's um, <clears throat> the title comes from um, the rather baleful, great revolutionary slogan "Patria o muerte." So, uh, rather than say, "My homeland or die." People are saying, can we please have homeland and life? It's, it's, uh, it was put together by a, by a sort of mixture of exiled Cuban uh, musicians in Miami and uh, a lot of musicians who worked here. It has got a very catchy line, um, which is, it's over. And so, so yours was 55, ours, was, um, ours is going to be 22 in terms of the years, but it's over. It keeps repeating the thing, it's over. So it's had a huge impact. It was what they were all chanting in the protests. They were chanting that slogan. And does that give a hint to the wider wishes of those who are protesting? So obviously like, there's the immediate focus on food, electricity, medicines, um, probably a little bit of the COVID-19 response, but is there hints of what the wider uh, wishes are? Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I, this was a totally spontaneous protest without leaders, which is a pretty extraordinary thing. And so people, as you would expect, want food, they want medicines, they want electricity. What people want beyond that is a very very difficult thing to read. Lots of people have left. Lots of people are leaving. And do they want what exists in Miami? I don't get the sense that people do want that. People, I, I worry about saying too much on this because it's, very, it's a very difficult and complex subject. But um, people want to live well with their families. They want what everybody else in the world wants. You know, I've always thought that, you know, apart from being very Latin, Cuba would make the most brilliant little sort of Sweden in the Caribbean, but it's never going to be allowed to be that. It's got to be one thing or the other, as far as I can see. And if you were asking my opinion, I'd say the trouble is it's 90 miles off, off Key West. It's incredibly close to the United States. Um, the United States takes a huge interest in what's happening here. So Cuba essentially has two choices. It's either very like America, it becomes like Puerto Rico, and is in, uh, which is an American colony and is Americanized. Or else its other choice is this, to be um, a crumbling remnant of, as Barack Obama put it, the Cold War. So most people want to continue with their free health service. They think it's, a lot of Cubans don't understand that a lot of us have it. In, a, in most of Western Europe certainly has um, free at the point of contact um, health service, which um, they do here. Uh, they want that. They definitely want the education system. They want it to work better than it does. They want the arts. They're hugely into the arts. People want all that. But, they, you know, they would also, frankly, kill for a good a good B&Q, a good um, sort of um, ironmongers. Uh, uh, my partner is extremely erudite and incredibly intellectual and runs 
and runs um, an arts organization here or a department for an arts organization here. Um, but she admitted to me the other day that when I, we were in Canada for the summer a couple of years ago, she admitted that I had to go and do a story in Brazil. And while I was away, she spent a whole day in a mall just going to every single shop. So, you know, what people want is the same it's the same as in every country I've ever been. People, uh, I remember interviewing a woman of the Himba tribe, tribe in Namibia who was the most, uh, I won't go into the details, uh, long story, but I remember asking what she wanted and she said, well, I'd like some healthcare for the elderly and some primary school education for the kids. And this is, this is an extremely educated population, extremely educated. And you can blame the revolution for many things, but it's educated the population. People are sophisticated. Where they will generally tell you that what they will say, what is the point of being this educated if I don't have any opportunities? That's what they will say. Uh, let's move on to the president himself. Who is Miguel Diaz Canal and what is his legacy so far? Or what does he want his legacy to be? He's a bureaucrat. It, uh, it always slightly amuses me um, that uh, the rest of the world went to, began to elect great populists like, uh, you know, Victor Orban, uh, John, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, Bolsonaro. Um, but uh, just at the moment that Cuba decided they'd had enough of, it had the greatest populist of them all in Fidel Castro and then decided to, um, um, to, to go for the least populist man you can ever imagine. He's 61. He's from Villa, Villa Clara, which is in the center of Cuba. He's, um, I've spoken to many people, quite a lot of people I know knew him as, um, as a young man. And he, he was, uh, as a young man, he's, and I suspect behind the scenes, he's one of the most personable people in the government. He's, um, he's quick to laugh. He's, um, is uh, everybody seemed to like him enormously. Then he was put in this position, and you would never know now that he was there like that. He um, he's like a sort of rock now. You wouldn't. There's no way you could tell him what he thinks or what he um, wants. Really, his um, his slogan all the way through has been con- continuity. And as various wags have pointed out to me, there's nothing. The Cubans want less than continuity, but that's that's uh, he has to deal with a lot of internal politics within the Communist Party, um, the ruling Communist Party. I couldn't claim, and I don't believe you could find any journalist here that could they might claim, but who actually knows what's happening within that organization to any great degree. But he'll be balancing a lot of different viewpoints. Um, lots of those viewpoints could end his career and um, or lots of people holding those viewpoints could end his career. Um, so I suspect, I suspect he is in a tricky position and it's very difficult to tell which way this will go. And what has his handling of the COVID pandemic been like? So you mentioned some names there and I think people have got to know a lot of those men because of how they've handled the pandemic. How has Diaz Canal uh, done it? Well, they did so well at the beginning. They basically kept it out. And uh, for year, for months, we were bobbing along with sort of 10 new cases a day, 12 new cases a day. We started to panic and would wash every single vegetable we brought home when it got up to 40 new cases a day. That all did very well till the 15th of November. 
last year. And I'd just been on a road trip and I was dropping off the car at the car rental and they just allowed planes back into Cuba and so, because they closed all the borders. And suddenly 12 planes came in or something from the Florida alone. And on that day, I am doing this off the top of my head, but on the, on the 14th of November, I think there was 129,000 new cases in the United States and there were 28 in Cuba. I was in the car rental place. It was so packed in there. It took me six hours to return the car. And the people in front of me were saying they were driving to every point in Cuba and it spread. It just went everywhere. And since then, it's been fighting a losing battle against it. And they've been allowing Russian tourists to come into the Keys, the beautiful beaches of the north. And they have brought it in the latest variants. And so in the whole of 2020, there were 13,000 new cases just over yesterday or today. I think today there were 9,000 cases in a day. So we're... We're, the whole of last year has been covered in less than two days now, in about sort of about sort of thirty six hours, and we're now seeing deaths beginning to rise to seventy five, eighty a day. These are numbers. So, so, and the hospitals are being overwhelmed. So they're in a race now to get the vaccines out in time to to try and halt that. How is the vaccine rollout going? They've vaccinated. They they. I should mention the thing that is of greatest pride to all Cubans at the moment. They have developed five of their own vaccines, which for a country like this is incredible. We've only got their word for how effective they are, but they seem to feel that they're in the 90% effective range, better than the AstraZeneca that I've had. They, they haven't got enough syringes to put it out. They're giving it to her, and I presume it works, because why would they be rolling it out in the way that they are? And um, everybody's extremely proud of it. Uh, they've done about 20% of the population so far. Roy, you mentioned earlier that Biden was continuing Trump's strategy on, on Cuba. What exactly is that strategy? Well, maximum pressure, really. So when Trump came to power, there were huge cruise liners coming into um, Havana port filled with American tourists. There were many, many flights to all parts of the country. Um, Americans were really discovering Cuba for the first time or since, since the revolution in 1959. Cubans themselves in Miami were flying back and forth constantly. They were buying properties here. They were um, pouring money into, um, across to families. All these things were beginning to go on. Trump cancelled all the cruises. He um, said that flights would only be allowed into two cities, I think two possibly even one. He, um, he then went with extraordinary aggression after any businesses, global businesses, um, doing business in, um, in a, a Cuba. So what you have is, so expatriate businessmen here obviously have to, do, have to do banking. They have to bank abroad. But there's actually only one bank left where you can do banking. Uh, you, you know, you try and do banking with any other bank and they just say no because they want they're more interested in the banking they do in the United States. And um and so he he aggressively went after them and then most brutally uh went after Western Union saying that they couldn't no longer send back 
any money to families. And remittances is a huge part of the economy here. You have to almost imagine the Cuban economy as it's a very elderly population here, average age is 42, that compares to 41 in the UK, 40 in the US. So you imagine that the working population, a lot of it is outside the country, mainly in Miami, a lot in New Jersey, but elsewhere as well. And they're all sending back money. So you imagine the economy as a whole, whole in a global sense. And then, and then what he did was basically put an axe through the external money coming in. So Biden promised, uh, President Biden promised before he was elected that he would change that detail, that he would allow the re resumption of remittances. But interestingly, having got to the White House, for whatever reasons, he has decided not to do that. He set up a committee to look at it, but who knows when that will report. And the one thing he has done in the wake of the, um, wake of the protests is that he called Cuba a failed state and put sort of sanctions across those Vespas Negras I was talking about, all the black-suited police officers. If you're a black-suited police officer with a truncheon and a baton, you are now sanctioned by the United States. So he's done that. So, yes, that's the situation at the moment. And then in terms of Diaz-Canel's reaction to the protests, has there been any, um, I guess, concessions to the protests or has it all been what you could describe as hardline? No, it hasn't been all hardline. Um, definitely there's concessions coming. You know, there was noticeably more food in the shelves. Um, they've got, they've managed to get a, um, Mexico, some other countries are sending um, food packages, Russia, huge delivery from Russia the other day. Um, so people are sending help. Interestingly, having sort of pulled people out onto the street and taken a very aggressive approach, originally DS Canal, Canal has um, now we started speaking about love and that we're all Cubans and we should all love each other and look after each other. And um, we shouldn't allow foreign forces to, to uh, get between us. So there's a, that, there's a sort of a lot of talk of on that sort of nature. Um, still, you know, people, any ringleaders are being sort of rounded up and charged if they are under the laws here. Um, so there's a sort of double approach. The problem, though, is down the line, it's difficult to see a way out. The government is bankrupt. There is no way to see where the money is coming from. COVID numbers are terrible. There's no sense there'll be any um, new amount of um, any sort of great upswing in tourism. There's no sense that the, the United States will allow more money into the Cuba and so that doesn't change. A traditional release valve in the past has been that Cubans just leave and go to Miami. You're seeing a lot of Cubans leave at the moment, but the Americans have made it very, very clear. Um, the director of Homeland Security, um, who is actually part Cuban, has made it very clear that um, any Cubans found trying to get across the floor of the Straits will be returned. And actually that just happened. Uh, they just returned, I think, 40 odd Cubans who they got, those were after the protests and they still returned them to Cuba. So that pressure release valve isn't operational. And 
America is keeping on the pressure. So all the elements are still there. None of them have been resolved. So it's, so who knows what will happen next? Yeah, it's hard to have a crystal ball, but you can envision more protests. Yes, there is something very interesting happening, which is that um, which is that there's a lot of criticism I've never seen before with from within. So you're getting. I wrote about the other day a young communist who wrote very aggressively against uh, the way the government's handled this and very much said, you know, we've always been taught to be disciplined in our message and that we should never criticise the government. That has been an error. It's been a mistake. That's what's got us into this mess. He said, why? Um, I probably got it here. But um, he said, why in 2020, why was half the government spend spent on building hotels? and not invested in that when there were no tourists? And why was there no investment in agriculture or when we we're all starving? So these are sort of extraordinary questions that are being asked. And you're seeing quite a lot of those um, questions being asked throughout society. And not so don't see it as a completely pro or anti thing, which is what it is outside. You're either pro-Cuba or anti-Cuba if you take any interest at all. But it's much more nuanced here. And so there's a lot of criticism from within about how it's been handled. And, well, there can be, I would imagine, I do not know for a moment, but I imagine there's um, a variety of views within government about how to respond to that. In 1997, when a group of four economists wrote a similar essay to the, the, the one I'm quoting, they all went to jail, one of them for four years. But on the other hand, Diaz Canal has, uh, Canel has said um, there has been mistakes made. Lots of people within the government have said mistakes have been made. So there might be a move. And I think if the move comes, it would be a move towards a more Chinese of Vietnamese model, which is a market economy with socialist leanings, i.e. people are allowed to do business as long as they don't criticise the government. That's always been resisted here always been resisted and i think it's always been resisted because um in fact i pretty much know this because raul castro said it when he stepped down as president uh, not as president he'd stepped down several years ago as president but when he stepped down as first secretary of the communist party in april he said <coughs> that they had to beware the effect of of american money they're more terrified of american capital than they are of american guns i'd say yeah, it's it's really one of these ones to to continue watching. And thanks so much for explaining all that. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. It's really good to hear from somebody who's who's living in it and and has explored it so well for their own work and life. Thanks so much, Rory, for coming into us today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Explainer, and a big thank you to Rory for joining us today. This episode of the Explainer was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer and the work we do, like hearing from people like Rory across the world, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really, really great way to make sure other people can discover it, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.